We're back, and it is always a delight to say we're back with one of my favorite people. Her name is Elaine Donnelly. She is a remarkable force of nature when it comes to her efforts over decades to protect, to enable, to speak for the people who serve our country in uniform, who often can't speak very well for themselves um, under the restrictions of our uh, military code of conduct, but whose lives, whose culture, whose future combat effectiveness is being toyed with by the Biden administration and now by the United States Congress in ways that could be very, very problematic in terms of our military's ability to do its mission, namely protect our country and its people. Her name is Elaine Donnelly. She has been the founder and president of a marvelous organization, the Center for Military Readiness. You can follow her great work at cmrlink.org. And uh, with her occasional visits to this program, uh, you can learn about what she's doing and what we all need to be paying attention to, particularly at a moment when the United States Senate is considering very, very problematic legislation, its annual defense authorization bill known as the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. I've been involved in this process off and on for decades myself, and I've never seen uh, an NDAA that is more problematic than this one. And we're going to talk with Elaine about why that is and what, if anything, might be done about it. Elaine Donnelly, welcome back to Secure Freedom Radio. It's always good to have you with us, especially yes, today. Good morning, Frank. Thank you for that very kind introduction. And you know, you're right. The uh, National Defense Bill comes up every year, and it's usually labeled must pass. Not this year. This defense bill deserves defeat because it is loaded with social agendas, both the House and the Senate versions. Uh, if it should pass and if everything is packed into it in a conference committee, if a conference committee occurs, and that's somewhat in doubt, too, because we're getting close to the end of the year, and they haven't figured out how they're going to get all this major business done before the end of the year. But the mandates in both the Senate and the House bill, let's start with draft our daughters, uh, this is a monumental change in policy, and it goes even further because in both versions of the House and Senate bill, it calls for a change in the very purpose of selective service. It would put in there a, a blank check, blank check language that would empower the Pentagon to commandeer the lives of young people for reasons that have never justified conscription before. And how do we know this? Look at what the Pentagon is focusing on right now. They're, they're talking about diversity, inclusion, and equity mandates, quotas, time and money-wasting efforts to address climate change. This has been called a strategic imperative. Uh, we have controversial training programs fighting extremism with racial stereotypes. There's language in this bill that would make this law. There's a red flag gun confiscation provision that Second Amendment groups are up in arms about. They see this as a threat to constitutional rights. Uh, the critical race theory programs uh, that would demoralize and divide military personnel with unresolvable allegations of systemic racism and white supremacy, these are toxic among 
persons who must trust each other for survival in battle, but that doesn't matter because that kind of program would be mandated if, depending on which version of this defense bill gets passed, uh, if that becomes law. And I haven't even gotten into the changes in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the uh, Kirsten Gillibrand legislation that has been billed as a way to, to reduce the numbers of sexual assaults in the military, it would do nothing of a kind. What it would do is take control over these cases out of the chain of command to some distant uh, lawyer experts over there. And I would predict if this passes, and it looks like it will, next year we're going to be hearing about people who feel they were sexually assaulted they were sexually assaulted, they want to file a complaint, and they have to do so with some lawyer who's, you know, 10 states away. Uh, it's going to be a convoluted, ridiculous system. Uh, the commanders will not have the responsibility they should have over this, this issue. And um, unfortunately, many Republicans have gone along with all of these, these issues that I have mentioned, even though in other contexts they say, oh, I'm against critical race theory, I'm against extremism and diversity and uh, inclusion and equity, I'm against quotas, uh, they, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth because it's part of a defense bill. They think, oh, well, this is must pass. Well, they've got to get over that. Elaine, you've set a very rich table here for us. Let, let's go through some of these in a little bit more detail if we can. Um, the draft our daughters language that you're referring to, uh, I, I think, has historically been anathema to people on both sides of the aisle. It seems as though it is uh, likely, as you say, to become law. Um, and then there's this other element to the selective service statute that they are rewriting that would essentially, as I understand it, create the opening for national service under this rubric? Is that right? That is correct. And um, one correction, the Republicans have always opposed uh, inclusion of women in selective service. They have always supported the all-volunteer force. That is not the case with the opposing party. This is a legacy issue. It's like pro-life. So for Republicans, and there were several on the Armed Services Committee in the Senate who voted for this bill, they seem oblivious to what this language means. The language talks about having adequate military strength and the requisite number of personnel with necessary capabilities to meet, and this is the money quote, diverse mobilization needs of the Department of Defense. The House bill is more specific. It talks about mobilization needs of Department of Defense during a national emergency, not solely to provide combat replacements. Now, what does that mean? That's the open blank check to that, that Congress must not sign because it would authorize the Pentagon bureaucrats to use carrots and sticks to steer the lives of young people for reasons that have never justified conscription before. Under the Senate bill, it also calls for something uh, described as an executive agent for national mobilization. This office would be responsible for producing a plan that would induct large numbers of volunteers. How many are we talking about? 300,000, 600,000, a million new volunteer and other personnel inducted into the armed forces under the MSSA. That's the Military Selective Service Act. Now, first of all, that's an anomaly. The Selective Service Act is not about volunteerism. This is conscription. Okay, so uh, mandatory future national service requirements 
would begin right here. This is an incremental process. The National Commission... The old salami slicing. Ex- exactly. Slices, the National call. Commission on Military, National, and Public Service that was set up in 2016, the last time this issue was thoroughly debated, they set up a commission, $45 million, three years. Their primary objective was to push for what they called a cabinet-level council on military, national, and public service. This is the big bureaucracy that would commandeer the lives of young people. Uh, it would include military service. It would cross between the executive branch and, the, and uh, Congress and constitutional responsibilities. And it's something the American people aren't even the slightest aware of. And yet, again, this is one of the amendments. In, it's in the Senate bill. It's implied in the House bill. To see Republicans voting for this kind of stuff, big government stuff, uh, with no excuse, it, it really is distressing, and the bill is a mess. The bill is a mess. It's, it's toxic. It needs to be defeated. And organizations that score votes uh, should score votes. Anybody who votes for a mess like this uh, and goes back on, on social issues that they say they're conservative on and then they vote for it in the Department of Defense, I mean, the military leads the way. In this case, it would be required to lead the way in the wrong direction. Now, specifically, and, uh, Elaine Donnelly, I want to just mention like this. this this point that you made about the so-called critical race theory. I've, I've been calling it communist racist training. Uh, but whatever the CRT stands for, it is creating a bureaucracy. It would be creating and institutionalizing um, the indoctrination of our personnel in the military in ways, as you say, that are absolutely at odds with the good order and discipline, the unit cohesion, uh, the fraternity, if you will, the culture of the military, and um, and will, I, I think, as you indicated, uh, catalyze further the purging of uh, good people from the armed forces. Um, some perhaps because they're not going to put up with this, and some because they have been deemed to be unsuitable, unworthy of serving in our armed forces. But either way, we're going to find good good warriors who we desperately need at a moment like this, given the dangers well, the of the world. the last thing we need, to be this House bill, from would is, the House bill would establish an office of combating extremism, which would engage and interact with solicit recommendations from, get this, outside experts on extremism. Can you say Black Lives Matter? Yeah. I mean, what is Law going Center. on here? Yeah, no. Well, this is simply institutionalizing the arrangement that I think Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense has put into place right now with uh, Bishop Garrison, a Marxist radical, uh, running it at the moment. But the idea that this would be made permanent is uh, is just appalling. Um, this brings me to one other uh, topic, and I, I know that you're, you're sort of aware of it, and I assume following it to some extent, Elaine Donnelly. Um, this idea that uh, the military is going to be mandated to be vaccinated with this increasingly controversial COVID-19 vaccine, um, large numbers of military personnel, some of them in some of our most specialized, highly trained units, whether they're SEALs, whether they're pilots, whether they're Marines, um, are simply refusing to be subjected to this. Um, talk a little bit about what that's entailing for the military, as well as uh, is it being addressed, as far as you can tell, in this bill? This is alarming. 
um, I'm not sure that it's in this bill, uh, but it is an executive mandate. Uh, and as we, as you just mentioned, once you codify something, it's worse than an executive mandate. But the executive mandate right now uh, is forcing thousands of people to leave the military or say they're going to leave with a heavy heart because they don't want to leave the military. The problem is the administration is extremist in its view. They're not allowing, they, we have yet to see any religious exemptions uh, being allowed. Uh, if people have antibodies, they've already had uh, COVID, or if they, um, there, there are other reasons, health reasons, why they would be at higher risk of accepting that vaccine. They're not making any allowances whatsoever. Everything about this administration has been extreme. And we're, lo we're going to lose a lot of good people as a result. And who benefits from that? Potential enemies, certainly not the strength of the United States military. Well, I call it a wrecking operation, Elaine Donnelly, and I think it's applied across the board. It's not just the military, but it's particularly ominous that it is befalling our military. Um, finally, Elaine, we've got a couple of minutes left, but um, quickly talk with us about one of the most prestigious, one of the most distinguished elements of our armed forces, basically from the beginning of our country forward, has been the United States Marine Corps. Uh, the Commandant of Marines has recently, it seems, thrown in with this woke um, social engineering, uh, well, cultural Marxism, uh, and the consequences for his service and for its personnel uh, is hard to overstate in terms of the damage that's possible here. What do you make of it all and what can be done? The, the Marine Corps is taking the advice of people who think that it should be more like the civilian world. And the Talent Management 2030 plan that was issued by the Commandant General Berger uh, is written as if we're talking about an executive uh, civilian corporation, not the United States Marine Corps. Um, it, it has some some good ideas in there. I didn't realize the attrition rate in the Marines was so high. Uh, to keep the, the force younger, 75% of first-term Marines are discharged every year. That seems wasteful. Maybe that does need to be addressed. But here's the tip-off. Here's the problem. Uh, when the Marine Corps says, we're going to match people to the MOSs that they that would serve them best, that they would Those be happiest in, that they would do the best in, right. That sounds like a good idea. Idea, but it's contradicted by this. The Marine Corps is offering a $144,000 salary for a diversity, equity, and inclusion advisor. Now, that's a pretty hefty salary, okay? And it's not unusual in this field of expertise. It's almost twice as high as an explosive ordnance disposal specialist in the Marine Corps, and more than four and a half times that of an infantryman. So where are the, the priorities going? Well, if it's all about diversity and inclusion and all that, it runs up against, well, we want to have more retention. We don't want people leaving so soon. Well, if that's the goal, why would you actively pursue a cohort of people known to leave earlier, and that happens to be women? And why do women leave earlier before they reach the rank of colonel or general or higher? Because they do other things that are more important, like having families. I mean, this has been documented. We know this is a fact. Uh, if you start going down the road of diversity quotas, whether racial or gender or whatever, you you really have a conflict here between what is the Marine Corps supposed to be? It's all about excellence. It's all about combat readiness. At least that's been its culture in the past. And I'm a 
big fan of the Marine Corps, always have been. I hate to see this happening. But it began when General Robert Neller was a member of the Military Leadership Diversity Commission, which recommended all these changes way back in 2011. So this has been percolating in the Marine Corps and in the other services for a long time. Uh, now it's it's out in the open because we're in a Biden administration that wants this sort of thing. And it's it's really a shame because we only have one Marine Corps and its culture is special. And if we start messing with it and pretending like 360-degree reviews where junior officers can evaluate everybody above them anonymously, if you start doing civilian cultural things like that, you're going to destroy morale and other factors that are more important in a, in a fighting force. So I'm, I'm concerned about the Marine Corps. They're, they have schizophrenic leadership. Uh, they, they can't seem to, to decide whether they want to be like the civilian world, go down that road, or be the elite fighting force they always have been. I wish them well. Uh, I hope that a new president will be able to turn things around. Right now, this is the the ideas of the Biden administration being implemented. Uh, but the Marines are too special to, to be corrupted with critical race theory, uh, all kinds of quotas and things that are based on skin-deep uh, differences. Uh, that, that kind of a policy is not going to be helpful to our national security. What I've always admired about you, Elaine Donnelly, is that you've been able to keep your eye on the ball. And whether it's the phenomenon of trying to pretend that there's no differences between the sexes, or whether it's the idea that uh, you can put people um, who are sexually attracted to one another in, among other places, combat units without there being problems, or whether it's just more generally an appreciation of this precious thing. It's an intangible, and it's something, as I've often said with you, most civilians have no sense of at all. But this culture of the military, as you call it, that is jeopardized at our extreme peril because it will inevitably impinge upon readiness and combat capability and therefore deterrence of wars we don't want to fight and that we need not if we are capable of deterring them with effective, capable marine units, for example, or the best fighter pilots in the world, or SEAL teams and other special forces units that are um, legendary in terms of their effectiveness. And all of this is now on the line, it seems, um, as a result of this defective National Defense Authorization Act, uh, the wrecking operation inside the executive branch, including in the military services, and, and the lack of there being any kind of check on it all in the United States Congress at the moment. So the work that you do at the Center for Military Readiness in all of these areas, Elaine Donnelly, has never been more needed, more important, and more appreciated, at least by us. And I hope that people will go to cmrlink.org. Um, thank you, Elaine Donnelly. Come back to us soon. Next up, we'll be speaking with Pastor Stephen Ciparelli from Australia about what's happening to his country and what could be happening to ours next. That and more. Straight in.